Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and coming to you from Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Astor, America's earliest millionaires are household names. Unless they were black. Author Shamari Wills joins us to talk about his book, Black Fortunes. Folks were able to overcome tremendous odds to generate wealth, but they didn't necessarily have the institutions, the courts, they didn't have the large families to be able to preserve it and pass it down. And then the fiber arts community, not as tight-knit as you might have thought. There was a comment from a white woman who said, well, is it cultural appropriation if black people knit? Oh my God. (laughs) Because this is a white craft. Long before Beyonce was stacking her money and going fast like a Lambo, there was Mary Ellen Pleasant, a San Francisco silver tycoon. And over a century before investment banker Robert Smith bought the most expensive penthouse in New York, O.W. Gurley was building Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. These early black millionaires are profiled in Shomari Wills' recent book, Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. He joined us recently to talk about these pioneers and their legacy. Shamari, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. So if people have heard about early black millionaires, I feel like Madam C.J. Walker is maybe the one that they've heard of because there is still a hair care and cosmetics line that uses her name that's around. Um, But she actually wasn't the first black millionaire. Is that right? So why have people maybe heard about her and not some of the people who came before her? Well, it's interesting. So Madam C.J. Walker kind of um, has emerged as sort of an urban legend as the first black millionaire. She was very wealthy, very successful, very important historical figure. But, you know, she was predated by a pretty, pretty significant amount of folks. Um, I think one of the reasons she emerged as the first black millionaire is she sort of publicized her, um, her activities and her wealth and her exploits and her shopping. She actually had a uh, staffed PR person which was kind of unique for the time. Smart woman. Yeah. Yeah. So she was really the first to kind of push it out there uh, that she was a black millionaire. And she also was one of the first to become a millionaire uh, as uh, the uh, danger of being a black person of wealth was starting to abate. It was very dangerous in the 1800s and at the uh, turn of the century. But as, you know, we got closer to the 1920s, got into the late 19-teens, started to be a little bit safer to be a public black figure who had a lot of wealth. And I know that this is the entirety of your book, so I'll ask you just to, you know, maybe name one or two black millionaires who preceded her, maybe from the 18th century when it was really dangerous. Two would be Mary Ellen Pleasant, um, who became a black millionaire during the gold rush in San Francisco. There weren't a lot of uh, African Americans uh, in the gold rush of the 1840s, 1849, famously, in the 1850s. She went out there and she made uh, money doing a little bit of everything. She had laundromats. She had uh, boarding houses. She invested in silver. Uh, She was a money lender. She just really was really diversified and really, really savvy about money and just built up a very, very large fortune. And I actually used a lot of that money to help fight against slavery and for women's rights and a lot of great things. Another one most folks haven't heard of is Robert Reed Church who was a former slave who escaped during the Civil War, during this famous uh, naval battle, actually. He jumped off the ship and swam in the Mississippi to freedom. He emerged in Memphis and sort of became one of the big architects of that city and helped build that city up. Famously was the uh, architect of Bill Street, 
He was in real estate. He was in entertainment. He was in a little bit of everything, but he was one of the really big builders of, of Memphis. And as the city rose and became this big, important American city, he shared in that prosperity. And you actually had an early black millionaire in your family as well. Is that right? Yes. Yes. A little bit later. This is, you know, around the uh, C.J. Walker period, the later period, a little after Madam C.J. Walker. So my great, great uncle, John uh, Drew, was one of the first black millionaires in the Philadelphia area. He started the uh, first black owned bus line in the United States. It was in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which actually were where a lot of African-Americans lived. And uh, this bus line was to help them commute to work in Lansdowne in Philadelphia. Came really big, started with just him and just one bus. And uh, eventually he sold it to what's now SEPTA. And he made a pretty good amount of money from that sale. Invested that in the stock market in the 1920s, which of course was going up a lot. Pulled his money out right after the crash and, you know, he had himself a pretty decent fortune. So I kind of always knew that story uh, in the back of my head. That was kind of something I thought about as I started to research the stories of the other you know, lesser known black millionaires. So a a lot of the stories that you're telling take place in this era in between the end of slavery and the codification of Jim Crow laws in the South. I'm curious about if you can tell me about the effect that segregation had on black wealth or the ability to accrue black wealth. You know, one reason it was easier uh, is because it was sort of the wide open Wild West sort of thing. The country was reorganizing after this big war. A lot of people died, a lot of property was destroyed. So there were a lot of opportunities. At the same time, there was also a lot of opposition. The um, uh, aid of the government during that time was especially helpful because you had the Freedmen's Bureau, which is a department of the federal government, which was there just to protect African-Americans. So a lot of African-Americans felt safe in taking risks and building businesses, building big empires. But at the same time, as time went on, that created resentment. So while it started out, you know, as wide open opportunity, as time went on, uh, we got more and more resistance. The Ku Klux Klan was simultaneously developed in uh, Tennessee. It was actually a direct response to the black prosperity that was developing in Tennessee as blacks were starting businesses, running for office. A lot of white citizens in Tennessee were really, really angry about this. And so they started having these meetings at night. Uh, and eventually they became the Ku Klux Klan, which became just a scourge you know, for 100 years after that still is um, a big problem today. And, uh, and Robert Reed Church in particular is like a cat with nine lives, right? Like he escaped like a burning boat. He jumped off another boat and swam to freedom. And then he was shot in the head by a vigilante white mob that didn't like that he was a successful black business owner. Yeah, so in... Uh, Memphis in 1866, right after the Civil War, as blacks were building up property and building up businesses really quickly, there was this horrible race riot where uh, the black community was just attacked. Uh, The property was uh, burned. People were killed, uh, sexually assaulted. It's terrible. And Robert Reed Church was probably the most well-known black businessman. He had this big, uh, basically a nightclub. And so the mob came after him. They came to his nightclub. They robbed it drank all the liquor, emptied the till, all that sort of stuff. And then they actually shot him in the head and left him inside his business and lit it on fire, you know, expecting that he would perish. And somehow um, he escaped, kept going and rebuilt and, you know, helped the African-American community come back from that horrible travesty. That's amazing. 
you write about Greenwood, which is a section of Tulsa that was predominantly black, and it became to be known as um, Black Wall Street. Uh, and you mentioned at one point that a black dollar circulated through the community 26 times before it left. So I'm curious about your thoughts about, in an era of segregation, how that allowed black entrepreneurs to grow wealth beyond um, perhaps what they could have grown if, if things were integrated. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the history of sort of the African-American consumer is a history of being neglected. It wasn't really until Coca-Cola and Pepsi came along and they were some of the first companies to actually market to African-Americans that anyone was really interested in, you know, catering to the black consumer in any sort of meaningful way. You know, department stores were segregated until the 1950s and 1960s. So there's a long history of people rejecting the African-American dollar. What uh, Black Wall Street was, it was the basically the north side of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, during the early 1900s, around 1901, around 1920. And so the north side of Tulsa, it was divided by a set of train tracks, was the black section, and the south side was the white section. And uh, basically the blacks on the north side in Tulsa, they called it many things, Greenwood, Black Wall Street, they had this self-contained economy where they had everything, black doc doctors, black schools, black barbers, black insurance agents, black hair care salons. And so they had this self-sustaining uh, economy, in part because the business owners on the south side were not interested in, in, in catering to them. So Tulsa was this example of how segregation actually, you know, sort of got turned on its head. And African Americans said, well, you know, if you guys don't want our business, you don't want us to come spend money in your establishments, we'll build up our own and uh, famously became very prosperous, earning the nickname Black Wall Street. Right. It was almost like, you know, there was this entire separate but equal um, social structure and class structure, and some people were on the top. Some people profited from, you know, opening up all of the, the businesses or buying up properties. And in the case of Greenwood, Tulsa, that man was O.W. Gurley? Yeah, O.W. Right? Gurley. Tell me a little bit about him. So O.W. Gurley is a really interesting guy. Uh, he was born on uh, Christmas uh, on in the year of an emancipation in Arkansas. And he's just a really ambitious guy. He's always pursuing whatever he could. He worked for the postal office early on, which was one of the first federal jobs African-Americans could have. Uh, became a teacher, and then eventually he started participating in these in uh, land runs in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma um, was basically sort of a wide open territory in the late 1880s, 1890s. Uh, it was land that had been confiscated from the Native Americans, and the government was basically auctioning off this land through land runs to anybody who could get there and you know sort of plant their flag in a plot of land. Like that film with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman with the bad Irish accents. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He participated in those, and, you know, he had this vision of going there and, you know, having some land and being able to develop something, a big store or a big farm, or, you know, he just knew there was an opportunity there. So he ends up in Oklahoma through the land runs, um, and then after oil is discovered at the turn of the century in Oklahoma, Tulsa starts becoming a big town. So he actually uh, kind of uh, picked up his life. He was living in kind of the next town over, went to Tulsa, and bought up all, almost all the land on the north side of the train tracks of Tulsa, uh, which was completely undeveloped, and started to build up kind of this black enclave. So he, at one point, was the majority landowner in, in Greenwood, correct? Yeah, so he owned, he was basically everybody's landlord. He had 
you know, an incredible amount of power. You know, he was uh, almost everybody's landlord. He was also a sheriff's deputy, so he was basically the uh, law and order in uh, Greenwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he owned significant plurality of the land, so he was a really powerful guy. And the end of his wealth, I think, is both tragic and indicative of something you mention in your epilogue about how much of the wealth that was accrued was not intergenerational. It wasn't able to be passed down. And in O.W. Gurley's case, this is because Greenwood was burned down by a racist mob. And so I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on the fact that you have these six individuals who, for the most part, are entrepreneurs and accrued a great amount of wealth in their own lifetime, and that really after they died, they weren't able to pass that on to children or other descendants. I think one of the you know through lines of the story for me is that the period after slavery, Reconstruction, and you know early 1900s was a period where there was a lot of opportunity for people to create wealth as the country was changing and expanding and healing. There was just a lot of opportunities to you know go make a business or develop some land or become a you know become something, but uh, preserving wealth was a whole nother issue. A lot of times African Americans did not have equal status in the courts. Uh, that was something that was still being fought for. A lot of times, you know, they had to face so much violence and their lives were so much harder that they didn't necessarily have a giant generational family, so they had no one to leave the land to. So I think, you know, the story to me is about how folks were able to overcome tremendous odds to generate wealth but they didn't necessarily have the institutions, the courts, they didn't have the large families to be able to preserve it and pass it down. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's part of why it's so important to talk about the role that race plays in in class and in economics, Uh, because even if you were one of the few lucky people who was able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you were knocked back down again by a mob that came and burned down all of your property. Right. You also, you know, half the people who you profiled were women, which I thought was really amazing. You know, it seems remarkable given the gender gap today at the top of the economic ladder. Do you think that it was easier in this time period that you're writing about, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, to be a successful, wealthy black woman? Well, I think it was incredibly hard, you know, to be a successful anything if you were black during that period. Right, good point. But I think that these women are remarkable. So, I mean, I think that's that just stands alone. I think one of the things that was interesting was some of the women's dynamics with their husbands, you know, after emancipation of. There were not necessarily typical gender roles when it came to the workplace. I think uh, African-American women, you know, were able to seize that opportunity and become pioneers like Mary Ellen Pleasant and a lot of the other women I profiled in the book. Let's talk a little bit about today's landscape. So most of the African-American millionaires and even billionaires uh, who we know of have risen through entertainment or sports. And this is sort of the stereotype or the myth that is presented um, to many young black people about how you make money. But many of the, most of the people, all of the people, maybe with the exception of Hannah Elias, even though she was an investor as well, you profiled were entrepreneurs and investors. Were you trying to puncture at all stereotypes about how black people make money or came into wealth? I, I don't think I set out to do that. I mean, I think there is this, there, there's, there's a reason things are structured the way that they are. Absolutely. Um, I think entertainment has always been, or, you know, in recent history has been an avenue that African Americans could pursue, you know, entrepreneurially without a tremendous amount of resistance 
whereas um, finance and all sorts of other entrepreneurship have been a little bit harder to get into. But, you know, I was pleasantly surprised to see folks that were in a diverse, you know, array of fields, whether it was real estate development or, you know, manufacturing or, you know, any number of things. They were really a diverse group of, of entrepreneurs. And so much of this history has been ignored and lost to time. And I think it is such important work to bring it to the forefront. Many of the people in the book uh, embraced social activism. Um, you had Mary Ellen Pleasant, who bankrolled John Brown. Um, and then Robert Reed Church, you mentioned, he pressured Teddy Roosevelt to invite Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner. What do you make of the activism, or maybe lack thereof, of today's black millionaires and billionaires? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times people ask me, like, who today would I compare these folks to? And so, you know, one person, like the first person always comes to mind is Prince. And I think he was like, he's probably the person today that I would most closely parallel to these characters in, the, uh, in this book, because this was a guy who was giving millions of dollars every year to charity. Uh, nobody even knew until after he died and people started going through his financial documents. I think he was just a guy who did a lot and gave a lot of his wealth to, you know, causes to help African-Americans, whether it was, you know, helping um, African-American girls learn to code or just donating to all different types of charities, donating to schools. But he didn't publicize it. A lot of times he was known for telling people, don't say you got this from me. You know, most of the folks in this book were uh, attacked um, in the papers. They were attacked physically a lot of times. They were slandered called Horrible Names, and, it, you know, specifically because of everything they were doing to help the African-American community. And, of course, there are others, Robert Frederick Smith, the hedge fund manager is mm -hmm. another guy. Owner of the most expensive penthouse in Manhattan, I believe. I, I didn't know that. I yeah, know. I think it's $60 million, something wow. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about, uh, you know, there was this very public spat between Harry Belafonte and Jay and Bay. Um, Harry Belafonte said, you know, that one of the great abuses of this modern time is that we should have had such high-profile artists, powerful celebrities, but that they have turned their back on social responsibility. And Jay-Z, um, he responded, I, I believe, sort of angrily, but then later came back and was asked by the Times about it. Uh, do you think black celebrities have a duty to be more vocal? And he said, no, I don't believe in that. The way that people view celebrity isn't there. Everybody should be doing their part because it isn't about money. That doesn't solve it. I'm curious what you think some of the black activists and entrepreneurs from your book would have to say about that, that it's not about, that it's not about the money, that it's about everybody doing their own personal work of empathy. Well, I think if you look at what Jay-Z and Beyonce are doing now, I think they you know, have sort of come around to where you know, Harry Belafonte was in terms of suggesting that celebrities use their wealth uh, to help Harry Belafonte is someone who used a tremendous amount of his wealth and his celebrity to help Martin Luther King, help the civil rights movement. So he's speaking from <laughs> experience. But I do think black uh, celebrities in the black wealth class kind of gets off easy in terms of how much that they do contribute to helping African-American causes. You know, economically, there's so much disparity there. And in my opinion, there's not a lot being done to help that, that you would like to see folks with the means recognizing that you know, really what's going on economically in African-American community is a crisis and that there needs to be a response just the same way as if there were earthquake, you know, that hit Oakland, right, or that hit any of these, like they hit Detroit or hit Flint, uh, we would immediately respond. But there's also economic crisis going on in these places and many places of equal magnitude. So I do think uh, that the response 
is uh, certainly less than it has been in the past. All right, Shamari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. There's been some naughty behavior in the knitting community, and we are now in a moment of reckoning. Back in January, a high-profile white knitting blogger excitedly posted about an upcoming trip to India, saying it would be like going to Mars and writing, if I can go to India, I can do anything. Some commenters called her out for exoticizing a foreign culture, which led to some fragile white knitters clutching their pearls. This precipitating incident has knitters taking a hard look at inclusion and representation. Do fiber artists have the moral fiber to address racism within their community? Joining us today is Felicia Eve, owner of the Park Slope Yarn Shop and Community Space String Thing Studio. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thank you. So when I've told people that we're doing a segment on racist knitting or I've Mm. told them about this kerfuffle, Mm -hmm. most people think I'm joking or are incredulous about it. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do people have such a hard time with this? I think the whole idea, and I think a lot of us felt the same way, the idea that racism in knitting is just like, well, that's like a sacred place. Like, this is supposed to be a happy thing. Like, why would that come up? And, And as a woman of color, I say to people all the time, I was just like, well, you know, the knitters here live in the United States, and our current temperature is very hot right now for mm-hmm. racial, cultural things of that nature. And the people who knit are part of that culture, too. They're part of the United States. So Absolutely. Racism you know, touches everything. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. So it was more about the aftermath that was kind of had everybody up in, in, up in arms. Another fellow knitter, and she's a, a podcaster, African-American woman, sent me a message. She was just like, you should really read some of these you know, responses that are going on. Yeah, so, so let's now, talk a little bit yeah. about the backlash. There was some mm. nitpicking, mm. if you will, at the <laughs> All tone. These good little tones. Oh, we like. love a pun here on Woman 2 <laughs> BK. Together. I love the clutch the pearls. There's so many Thank different fits. That's, that's a real inside knitter. <laughs> that, pun. Exactly. Most people wouldn't I knit, get that. I knit myself. Oh, well, so. good. Yeah, so you get it. You get so, it. So um, you know, some people took this original poster to task, mm-hmm. and um, I believe that she ended up responding. Well, ultimately, after a few posts of like, I don't understand what the problem is exactly, which I think is what really turned people off. Like Mm -hmm. as a woman of color, I read the post. And to be honest, my first response was it's like, this is a white woman who clearly has no brown or black friends, (laughs) like, you know, who just didn't know any better, didn't have somebody to say, could you take a look at this and see if it could be, you know, offensive to somebody just didn't know any better. And I literally, as people of color do, just check it off. It's just like, okay. Keep, keep it moving. And it was not people of color who were taking her to task at that point. It was white women who were coming for her hard. You know, like, how dare you? How insensitive? I mean, and it kind of went on. And you're right. Her first response was, I don't get it. Like, you shouldn't be upset about it, which is when it really took that sharp turn. And she figured out or somebody called her and was just like, you need to backpedal fast and come up with a different response. And she did. And she ultimately, you know, found somebody to educate her and she went there. But by that time, the train had left the station and however many other puns you could come up with, it was gone. It was the, mm-hmm. it was way past her at that point. It became a whole process of education, you know, which ends up falling on um, people of color to do that work, which is a lot. Right. It's a form of emotional labor Absolutely. and educating gets Constantly. old. You know, that's one of my favorite lines. Like you, you teach people how to treat you. Right. But that is a constant thing. 
every single day. You know, like we we knit for the the meditation of it. We knit for the Zen of it. We knit for the community. We knit because we enjoy the tactile, emotional things that it evokes in us when we knit. So the idea that all of this would come and kind of crash down in our happy place was even more exhausting. I have a few different versions of my logo, and one of the tag, one has a tagline on it that says, you know, the string that holds holds us all together kind of thing. And I was just like, I think we should take this as an example. Like, we should treat each other as a community, be kind to each other, give each other the benefit of the doubt to some extent, but also be open to being checked if you're wrong. You right. know? <laughs> right. I mean, before all of this happened, mm-hmm. had you experienced racism within the knitting community? Yeah. Absolutely. Can you like, give me maybe an example from your personal life? Um, I know. I can say a few years ago, this is before I opened my yarn shop, Vogue Knitting Live, which you'll know is, as a knitter, is like this big convention, basically, that takes place in New York City at the end of January every year. And this particular year, two girlfriends of mine who come from out of town, I call each other our knitting our, our knitting friends. I'll use the, the proper term, the nice term that we call each other, but we, we do a traveling, a lot of traveling for knitting. So they came to town and we went to the festival and we did some shopping there. And at one of the booths that we shopped at, we were given a coupon to go to a local yarn shop who, you know, during those particular festivals, if everybody's at those at those events, then the yarn shops really take a hit as far as financially because nobody's shopping at the yarn shops. Right. But we were very conscious about we would do so much shopping at the festival and then we would go do our own yarn crawl to the different shops because they wouldn't be as busy. And that was a tradition that we had kind of done. So this time we went to a yarn shop that we had never been to before. And we had the coupons. It was one of a few different shops, but it wasn't the only reason we were going was because we had a coupon. So we went in. Each of us were shopping. We had asked some questions. We were vaguely, you know, agreed it, if you could call it that, you know. But again, something we were used to didn't prevent us from doing what we would normally do. Sure. And we had asked a few different questions and their responses were tart, you know, like, oh, yeah, no, you can't do X and that's it, you know. And in fact, at one point she was encouraging us to go someplace else to buy the same thing. Oh, well, you know, they have the same thing at blah, blah, blah place. I don't mind if you go buy it someplace else. That seems like not normal business not owner behavior. Not for a retail store. <laughs> no, no, not when you're like, well, I know I have it, but so-and-so has it. I'd be happy if you go someplace else and buy it. Right, no, not normal for your competitor. Right, yeah. so, um, and then ultimately when we got to the cash register, now each of us has at least $100 a piece. In my yarn shop, if you have $300 worth of stuff that you're purchasing at a yarn shop, I'm happy. I'm. What do you need? You right, need you water. Want coffee, you, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you need me to rub your feet. Like, what's the deal? But my friend said, "Oh, don't forget. You know, we have the coupon, which all of us are just doing our thing." And I was just like, "Oh yeah, you're right." And, and the response from the woman was, "Oh, so that's why you're here." And we were like, "Wow, if we really didn't want this yarn." We wouldn't buy it. The people were like, I would have put that yarn on. I never would have bought it. But we bought it. And as we were walking out, my friends were like, nice place. Never going back there again. And, you know, we haven't. We didn't go back. But I hear it so often in the shop from people that come to my place and say, you know what? I've been to all these different shops, Brooklyn and Manhattan, you know, and this is the warmest place. Like people, you say, hello, you're not following me around the shop. This is black and white, but particularly people of color, which always is kind of like, it's kind of like the nod, like the head nod kind of thing. Right. Like, you know, it's kind of like, are you the owner? Like, yes, I am. And they're like, yes. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yes, that's great. And they're like, you know what? I really appreciate the fact that you educate us. Like, it's not just like, it's over there. Good luck kind of thing. Like, it's a conversation. Like, you know, my regular thing when people walk in is, how are you? Let us know if you need any help. 
this is a tactile experience. Take your hands out your pocket, touch everything, touch your way through the store, you know, um, and they appreciate that. It kind of takes that whole stigma off of like, you know, I don't want to be accused of stealing anything or whatever. No, that's why you knit. It's tactile. You want to touch it. You know, you it's a sensitivity thing, you know, so that's our that's our shtick at our shop. And people like I so appreciate that you do that. People assume you don't knit because you are black. You know, I have a friend who had on a beautiful knitted sweater that she had made. And she was away at a hotel or something and in the lobby and, and this mother daughter were there and they complimented her on the sweater. That's beautiful. And she says, well, thank you. I knitted it. And they were like, well, no, like you like the mother and the daughter immediately was trying to like reel the mom. <laughs> right. in. But Mom's the mother cool, was going luck. there. Yeah. No, she couldn't. She she was on her way and she was determined to say, well, I didn't know that they knit like I didn't. I mean, and she said that I didn't know. I didn't know that they knit like wow. she, and made the assumption that. Somebody must have knitted, but it couldn't have been you, you know. So it's right. that that level of ignorance, you know, and the fact that you're not able to stop yourself. <laughs> like, you know, that you you can think it. You know, we all have thoughts. We have like a running thing in our head. But she was very intent on letting her know that she didn't necessarily believe that she had made that sweater. I mean, I think it's shocking because um, we keep on finding new ways mm-hmm. to, to see the racism mm-hmm. that exists in our world. Like right. there are some things where it's like, you know, oh, like, you know, that old trope, that's expected, mm-hmm. that's tired. You know, mm-hmm. can't you come up with a new way to be racist? And it's like, oh, wait, you are coming up with new ways <laughs> to be did. racist. Yeah. Like black people don't knit? Yes. That's There shocking. was even a comment. I remember when I really had to stop reading them, there was a comment from a white woman who said, well, is it cultural appropriation if black people knit Oh my God! <laughs> because this is a white craft? Wow. And so many people, I literally like put the phone down, like yeah, close the computer. I'm going to stop right, right now. There. I couldn't <laughs> because so many people had jumped all over her and was just like, do your history research. Like, you know, this is not, you know, first people that were doing this was in Egypt, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. and as many people would like to take Egypt out of Africa, it, they can't. That's right. That's where that's it is. Right. Put your blonde <laughs> Cleopatras away. Yeah, yeah. Egypt's in Africa. Let's just deal with facts. So, um, uh, I mean, I know also a lot of the discussion is not only about how um, knitters are treated in the real world, mm-hmm. but the representations online and Absolutely. that the knits that are being shown on Instagram are either totally disembodied mm-hmm. so you can project the white person you think uh-huh, made them uh-huh. or they're modeled by people who are white Uh Um, and that many knitters of color as well are like aware that if they post um, a photo with themselves with their knitting that Mm -hmm. it doesn't get as many likes or as many shares Mm -hmm. that is true we had this discussion I was having this discussion yesterday with someone else I was like you know you have all the different publications that come out and there are some beautiful publications like I have nothing against the quality of the work or the photography or anything else but the representation of people of color is scarce or it's almost like it's the same two or three, you know, across all the publications that you could come up with. And there's so many people of color who are doing incredible des- designers and yarn dyers and you have it, you know, and the representation is scarce. And and there has been a cry or um, conversation amongst people of color like, we should be featured on this. Yes, you should. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also a part of me just like, well, then let's make our own publications and do our own thing, you know, and, and who wants to take that on? Like, I'm willing to, to participate in that. So, you know, you can look at it from two different ways, but, and I'm not saying in any way at all that, that we shouldn't be on the regular publications because we should. And some of them do a decent job of it. And, and, and a lot of them have come out on Instagram saying, this is a safe space. We could do better. 
And it's a yes and situation where mm-hmm. it's like, yes, yes, you know, people of color and women and queer chefs should mm-hmm. be featured in Bon Appetit and Food and & Wine. And also Absolutely. there should be magazines created mm-hmm. by and for marginalized Absolutely. communities. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your decision to open up your own yarn store. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking at all about the desire to create a safe and welcoming space? It was. That was definitely part of it. I mean, that's kind of who we are. That's kind of like in my DNA. Like, you know, like I like to cook. Um, I have a big family. Have big, they're big kids, and we all eat a lot. But um, I wanted a yarn shop that felt like it was an extension of my home. You know, you didn't have to learn how to knit. You didn't have to even know how to knit when you came in or even feel like you had to use that, that type of yarn or anything like that. Anything creative is welcome at Strength Things Studio. So that's one of the reasons why it's not called Strength Things Studio Yarn Shop. It's just called Studio. That was a conscious decision. String Thing came out of the fact that it's all about the yarn. I'm a Profess, confess yarn stuff. <laughs> um, but it really is about the string. You know, we do birthday parties, we do dyeing workshops, we do everything. And our knit nights are kind of epic, I have to say. <laughs> and Tell me more. They get outside when it's warm, uh, we go outside too. Uh. So we just started a men's workshop the beginning of January because that's another area of the fiber world. People think men sure. don't knit. Sure. Right? Not true. Millers so many. probably don't see themselves represented. Exactly. So that's turning around. And mm-hmm. there's been other men's groups that have met throughout the city. It just so happens that there was one that was ending at the exact same time that ours was starting. So January 10th was our first knit night, and we are well attended. We get new people every week. I mean, anywhere from 10 to 15 guys every Thursday night are there. So that's been amazing. But our Friday nights we've been doing since we opened almost two years ago. So we say it starts at about five or six right after work and we say 8.30-ish. And it's always ish. It's never 8.30. We're never leaving there at 8.30. I think last Friday I left like 10.45, you know, because it's just, I call it like the end of the week deep breath, you know, we get school, there's school teachers that come in really early straight from school. And I realized at one point I was like, every sitting at the table right now is a school teacher and they're talking about that kid or something that happened that week as they're making these beautiful things. It's a release. You know, it's a way for them to kind of like let off that steam. But then we get some of everybody. We have a cross section of every everybody, every color, every age, you know, all different types of work backgrounds. And the conversations that happen during at night are incredible from relationship stuff to kids things to, you know, what. Did you watch this show and the conversations, or for that matter, Game of Thrones? Like, right. we do Game of Thrones knit night. And d- what does that entail? Are you so, knitting the types of garments that might be worn by Daenerys? No, or, no you can knit whatever you want. Okay. No, you can knit whatever you want. And to be honest, there's not a whole lot of knitting that actually goes on during the show because people are kind of freaked out. So I feel like we're in a bit of a moment where people are more aware of how and where they spend their money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, black-owned businesses in Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, we have a long history of them. But I think that people, once again, are trying to make sure that they spend their money within the community. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about that, about being part of this new wave of black businesses? And if you've been met with, um, I don't know, with any skepticism. I remember one quote that I saw of yours where you were Mm, like, mm. we've had a black man as president. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to believe that a black woman owns a knitting shop in Park Slope? Well, that's part of that's part of this whole conversation of race. Right. So we were black owned Brooklyn has featured us on um, on their Instagram site. But I was just like, yeah, you know, people come in and go assume that my white employees are the owner of the shop and not me. You know, people making assumptions, how that works. And you get the double, I call it the double O. So it's like, it's like, <laughs> oh, 
the, you have beautiful yarn, they'll say to my to my employee. And they go, oh, well, thank you, but Felicia's the owner. And they go, oh, you know, the double O. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wait, well, well, or my favorite line is, well, welcome to the neighborhood. And I'm like, thanks, but I've lived in the neighborhood for 15 years. And they're like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, you have kids. How old are your kids? I'm like, oh, they're old. You know, they're bigger kids. Where do they go to school? Well, they go to this private school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Yes, we do. Like, yes. That's I, a triple O. That's right a there. triple yeah. O. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, that's a triple O. You have three kids in private school and you live in the neighborhood. Oh, you live in a private? No, we live up the way. We have a house. Oh, oh, oh. you know, <laughs> like, how do we talk about the neighborhood? People right. know where it is and they're right. like, oh. So it's kind of that kind of thing. You know, at, at first it was just kind of like, wow, still. But now it's kind of funny. Like, we, we at the shop kind of enjoy the, the double O as we call it. <laughs> The that's right. R. That's right. Where the O just sort of like starts breaking uh-huh, the sound barrier because uh-huh. it like, goes up so high. Oh. Yeah. But then it overwhelmingly it's funny because I've had some white girls come into the store one time, younger, like 20 somethings. And they're like, this is such a cool place. This is cool. And they're like, are you the owner? I'm like, they're like, yes, high five. Like, you know, taking pictures or posting on Instagram, like black owned business, women owned business. Like, so it's people wanting to support black owned businesses, but it's also people that want to support women owned businesses. Like Absolutely. that's another huge thing. Like. There's an Instagram tab, like, buy from a black woman. Did you buy from a black woman today? Like, that's their thing on Instagram. And, yes, people are very intentional about it. You know, people will very much say, I want to support you. You know, overwhelmingly, we have been embraced. We feel, I feel a spot that was needed, I think. I think people want to see themselves, you know, for multiple reasons. Like, I had a woman call us from a school. They were doing a a field trip with their kids. And it was Black History Month, and they wanted to bring them to my shop because it was owned by a black woman, which is amazing to be so that, <laughs> that vision, right? That mm-hmm. vision for people. Or we have an after-school program, um, and we have, like, three or four girls that come every week, middle school kids. You know, parents are sold on it because it's two hours every week guaranteed, not on a screen. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's a mom figure in the shop, you know, saying, uh, mm, put that down. You know, aren't we supposed to be knitting? Let's have a conversation. And they're, they love it. But there's one girl that comes to the shop. Her mother called me up, African-American. She says, I'm sure I don't have to tell you how important, it, how important it is for our kids, especially our girls, to see somebody that looks like them. That's one of the reasons why she really likes to come to your shop, which makes my heart, you know, triple in size, right? I have right. three brown kids, yeah. so I know exactly what she means. And I said, I'll make a point of being here to see her when she comes in, you know, before she leaves. Kids are not a thing for me. Like, well, it sounds fine. like you've built this really robust community in yeah. your shop. And I hope that this is something that emerges out of this whole drama mm-hmm. within the knitting community that, you know, you have many places that you can buy yarn absolutely um, online, mm. you know, from big companies or, you know, at your local shop. Absolutely. And if you want to um, practice what you preach, I think that supporting uh, a black owned business is a great way to do it. Absolutely. Well, maybe I'll close out by asking you to respond. This is uh, to, to a, a line in one of the pieces that was in response to the original blog post. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. This is on Quillette. Okay. Um, and the author of this, Catherine Jepson Moore, um, is a white person who thought that this whole thing had just gotten a little bit out of hand mm-hmm. and that the backlash, the, the social justice warriors had gone too far. Mm-hmm. And so this is the last sentence because I know that you've talked about how actually it will be really nice to sort of like get back to the reason that we all Absolutely. knit, which is community, but also that it, it feels like a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. But this is what Catherine Jepson Moore says. Let's hope the world of knitting can return to a focus on 
designs, colors, and the value of something that's unique and handmade rather than the nationality or race of whoever made it. Hmm. Um, I agree with that from one perspective. It, it shouldn't matter who makes it, but everybody should feel accepted, right? When you say colors, you can look at it for many different ways, all the different colors of the rainbow, you know, the colors of the different yarn, but it should also represent the colors of everybody that's doing the work. So somebody shouldn't feel ostracized or ignored or not seen because of the color of their skin. You know, it's 2019 and we still have to say that, you know, make that demand. Everybody's craft, everybody's passion, they should be acknowledged for it. You know, they want to share it and it should be appreciated, right? In the yarn, in the knitting industry, and in the the crafting industry should be no different. But racism and exclusion and those type of things should not be welcome anywhere. I don't care what you're doing; just shouldn't be welcome anywhere. Thank you so much for joining us, Felicia. Thank you. That's the show for today. Coming up next time. That was 13-year-old Chandra Oppenheim, lead singer of the post-punk band The Chandra Dimension back in 1981. She'll join us with her daughter to talk about their music then and now. See you then. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 